If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Isaiah 40. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel. And I must confess, it's probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. So I got to pick the passage, so. So let us read God's word. Words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double of all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord, as we look at the hope, the hope that we have in Christ uh, and in his soon return. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning marks the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, I will not get that word right. This Sunday is set aside to highlight the hope and the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. But let's face it as Americans, hope has kind of been woven into our DNA, right? From Winthrop's phrase, a city on a hill, to every political candidate claiming that there's something greater on the horizon, we have to a certain degree, lost our sense of understanding the definition of hope. In his article, Hope of the American Culture, Woodward states this about Americans. He says that we tend to label hope as the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, or the promise of the American life. Woodward continues by saying that As Americans, we yearn for the new and the improved, the possible over the probable, the promise instead of the here and now. Do you agree with this assessment? Do you identify with these phrases mentioned in the quote? I think on some level we can all say that we have identified or we have labeled hope as the American dream as the pursuit of happiness, as the promise of the American life. It's interesting when you think about Christmas this time of year, we look out and we see that a lot of the corporations and a lot of businesses use the term hope to kind of sell their newest gadget, the newest toy that's on the market. We've kind of lost the true definition of hope. And if we continue to identify hope as the American dream or the American life, 
then I feel that we need to have a come to Jesus meeting. We need to have to, re- to renew our thinking about what hope really means. And that hope is not found in a toy or a gadget or in this make-believe view of the American life, but hope is found in Christ, in Him, and nothing else. And we'll see this this morning as we look in this passage. Before we can understand Isaiah 40, we have to dig a little bit deeper into the context behind it. Most scholars believe that Isaiah 40, or Isaiah as a whole, um, is divided into two sections, kind of like what um, Jerry was talking about. The opening chapters, verses 1 through 39, speak the dominant theme of sin and judgment. Isaiah 1, 2 through 4 highlights this when it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These are not good terms for God's people. This charge of rebellion and sin that Yahweh has against his people also brings about his chastisement. Because we see in Isaiah 6, a very famous passage where the Lord sends a prophet to declare the judgment that is to come. Go and say to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and to blind their eyes least they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is Isaiah 6. This does not paint a pretty picture for Yahweh's children. But it fits well with what we see throughout all the Old Testament, right? You go back into the historical books, and we see in 2 Kings 25, Yahweh, his dwelling place, his temple is mentioned, where God resides with his people, and what happens? His temple was destroyed. And if the temple was destroyed, where is Yahweh? So in Isaiah 1 through 39, we see the iniquity, and we see judgment, and we see the no mercy, and we see estrangement, and we see despair. A little side note that we do see glimpses of mercy, as we talked about, but ultimately there's, there's judgment, there's pain, there's anguish, there's suffering. And if we were reading, just like the church in the Old Testament, these opening verses of Isaiah... Would you get the sense of hopelessness? I'm sure they did, right? And this reminds us then 
as we look at Isaiah 1 through 39 in anticipation of Isaiah 40, of where our hope is actually found and who our hope is found in. So our passage this morning kind of serves as the door to understanding the Lord's message of hope. And this message of hope has three points to it. Forgiveness, restoration, rest. All of these points we see are wrapped into this ultimate message of hope that we find in Christ. The message for the church in the old, as well as the message for us today. So let's look at this, this point of reconciliation or forgiveness. Isaiah 40 starts off in opening verses with Yahweh commanding Isaiah to comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now why does Yahweh's people need to be comforted? We've talked about the, the context. We talked about the judgment. We talked about her rebellion against the Lord. But the Lord has also alienated himself from his people. We talked about that when we talked about the temple. But what is interesting about this command of comfort is it kind of reveals the character of Yahweh. Though his people have turned against him, they've chased after their own desires, he's still tender towards them. They're still his people. It's as if he's saying to the church that though you break my covenant, you endure my judgment, I, Yahweh, your God, will not, nor have I forgotten you. Just in these three words, or two words, comfort, comfort, these two commands. I have not forgotten you. And now that your judgment is over, let's, let's reconcile with one another. Let's get back into that relationship that we once had. We look in verses, in the second part of verse 2, we talk about one of the key components of reconciliation is this idea of pardoning. The pardoning of sin, the pardoning of iniquity. Look at verse 2b. It says this, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double of all of her sin. And the Hebrew word here for pardon also means paid off. So in other words, the judgment brought about by Yahweh is sufficient and has met his demands in order that his people may be forgiven. And this is the good news of the passage. Despite their sinful rebellion, despite God's judgment, God's people can turn back to him and he assures them that he will forgive them and he will pardon all of their iniquities. And this is important for us today too, right? When we look at this verse in light of Christ, this is our hope as well. 
Because of Christ's death, he has met the Lord's demands. He has paid it. We too can experience the hope that Yahweh is able to pardon our sins as well. Our past, our present, and our future iniquities are pardoned all because of the work of Christ. We can believe that. We can trust in that. We can have hope in that. We are pardoned because of Christ. Paul writes about this in Colossians 1. He says for this, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In our hope, who is Christ, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. He is our hope. So take that, just take that in for a minute, okay? Do you take comfort in the fact of knowing that you are forgiven? Does it comfort you? Does it comfort you to know that because of Christ and his work, that you have been pardoned? That God no longer holds a record against you? That you have experienced mercy? That your benevolent father looks down upon you, not with an angry, with anger, but he smiles at you because you're reconciled to him by his son. Or has the struggle with your sin has caused you to lose the sense of hope and forgiveness? Has your sin blinded you to this thought that you are pardoned? Brothers and sisters, be encouraged today and know that you can take great comfort in our God because because of Christ. Your sins have been overcome. He has dealt with your fear. He has dealt with your your, your doubt. He has dealt with your struggles. Christ has dealt with it all. Do not let your sin blind you to the comfort and a hope that you have in Christ. Because Christ has dealt with them all. So not only is this message of hope about our reconciliation, but it's all about our restoration as well. Look at verse 3 and 5. We find that the Lord is kind of shifting his message from forgiveness to one of restoration. And as we've noted, when Yahweh has brought judgment upon his people, you know, he kind of he removed himself from his people. We see this in verse 4 of Isaiah 1, right? Yahweh refers to them as utterly estranged. You know what it means to be utterly estranged? Kind of to be, to be left out, kind of forsaken. However, now it looks in this passage that, that Yahweh is coming back to his people. He's pardoned them. 
And since he's pardoned them, Yahweh, the king, is coming back to dwell with them. Look at how he uses the term wilderness in verse 3. The wilderness in this passage referred to this idea that uh, this is is where we were when Yahweh left us. We were in the wilderness. Do you know what it's like to be lost in the woods? I am not a big hunter. And whenever I used to go as a kid, uh, we would sit in this tree stand and we would just look out at the deer. And we would just sit there for hours. And that was pretty boring to me. It was around this time Game Boy was out, and so I would bring my Game Boy to play. But there was this fear when you would go in the afternoon that when it got dark, I had this fear of being left in the woods, in the wilderness. You guys all know my fear of the darkness. Now just my fear of being left in the woods, just put it on top, right? I'm being very revealing here to you. But this idea of being left in the wilderness, this is how we were. But now we see in these verses that that Yahweh is coming back to bring his kids out of the wilderness, back into a relationship with them, to dwell with them. And look at how he goes about doing that. He removes all the barriers to get to his children. The valleys, the mountains, the hills, the uneven ground, the rough places, all of the barriers that keep him from dwelling with his children, he removes them so that he can come back and be with them. Calvin states it like this. He says, the Lord will break them all down, referring to all of the barriers. For when he stretches out his hand, nothing can restrain or drive him back. He is on the march to be with his covenant people. What's interesting about Yahweh moving back to dwell with his people, back to restore that relationship with his people, is his glory. His glory is not just meant for his people to experience and to see it. But look, it's for all of mankind to see. All of mankind, when he comes back to be with his people, will see his glory. It will be revealed to them. It will be proclaimed to them. So these verses explain or demonstrate to us the extent the Lord will go about in restoring the relationship between him and his covenant people. But at the same time, when he restores that relationship with his people, when he restores that relationship with you and I through his son, Jesus Christ, the whole world is going to see it and they are going to be blessed. Because Yahweh has come back to dwell with his people. This is good news. When I think of this passage, I kind of... I always go back to all of these war movies in my head whenever I think of a king and the procession and all that. But the one movie that, that really comes to mind is that, that scene in The Lord of the Rings, when the return of the king, when you have Aragorn giving this battle speech to his people. Now, you could probably use the same illustration of um, William Wallace, but I love battle speeches. I, it just gets me pumped uh, whenever I go to battle which is rare. Um, 
But listen to, listen to the speech that Aragon gives to, to the people. He says, hold your ground. Hold your ground, son of, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that takes the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break our bonds of friend fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields and the age of men come crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. But all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. This is not get to pump you up ready for battle. But I think of this speech in the context of this passage when, when Aragon was talking about, do not let your fear or your, the failure of courage or the breaking of the bonds of fellowship, don't let it all come crashing down on you. Don't let it keep you. It's not going to keep you from, it's not going to keep you from seeing my kingdom come to fruition because I'm going to rid this world of sin. I'm going to rid this world of this darkness and I'm going to reign. And I see this in the same passage here when the Lord is coming back to dwell with his people that nothing is going to hinder him from coming back to his people to reign with them forever. There's no fear that's going to keep him, no lack of courage, no breaking of the bonds of fellowship, no age of men. Nothing is going to keep him from being and dwelling with his people forever. That's our God. Our tender-hearted, loving, and compassionate God. And that is our hope. And as we study the church in the Old Testament, we, we know that they get to experience a, a, a kind of a taste of this in, in 530 BC, right? When they're allowed to go back into their promised land, they're able to go back and to rebuild the temple. But we know as we look at this passage... That this idea of restoration did not occur in 537 B.C. The idea of restoration occurred years after that with the coming of the Messiah. Emmanuel coming to dwell with us. God coming to dwell with us. And in us, the temple that nothing can destroy. So Matthew actually uses these verses to introduce John the Baptist, right? The one who would come and to prepare the way of the Lord, to make way the ready of God to come and dwell with us. And through our relationship with Jesus Christ, and only through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are now restored at a right relationship with God the Father. So we can hope that when he comes back, that we will dwell with him forever in this kingdom that is to come or to reach his full fruition. But as I've talked about, this idea of glory, not only does the restoration that takes place between us and God occurs whenever as Christ came and, and as God as Christ came and dwelt with us, our Emmanuel, not only are we restored to God, but we also have this idea of we restored a relationship to one another. We actually can have fellowship with one another. This is often referred to as the vertical and the horizontal relationship. 
That through the restoration that we have with God, not only are we restored to him, but we are stored. We can have communion with one another. We can actually love one another the way that we were intended to love one another. The way that God created us. And this idea of loving one another and taking care of one another is, is how the world is going to be blessed. Going back to this whole idea, how is mankind going to see the glory of God? By the proper preaching and teaching of his word, yes. But also, the mankind is going to see and experience the glory of God by the way we live in this fallen world. It's the way we practice the commands of Christ. It's the way we, as the body of Christ, seek to love and seek the welfare of our neighbors around us. It is our heart for the lost. It's our heart for all of the people, believers and non-believers. So the restoration that takes place is not restoration just between us and God, but restoration between us and the rest of humanity. We can actually love and serve the way we were intended, a lost and dying world. I love how Archbishop William Temple states that he says it best when he says this. He says, The Christian church in its purest form is the only society that exists for the benefits of its non-members. Isn't that beautiful? The church in its purest form is the only society that exists for the benefits of its non-members. The restoration that took place between us and God also restores us into a right relationship with one another. And being in a right relationship with one another, therefore we can make the world better for others around us. You see how expansive this concept of hope is? Finally, he talks about not only is hope about reconciliation, hope is about restoration, but also hope is about resting and remaining hopeful. He closes out the passage, Yahweh closes out the passage by reminding his people to kind of rest and remain hopeful. And in order for God's people to do that, we must understand that we are feeble in light of the word of the Lord. In these verses, humanity is identified as, as grass and, 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 and due to the inability to help themselves. In other words, when he refers to us as grass, pretty much what he's saying is that we cannot help ourselves. We're helpless. We can't sustain ourselves. No matter how green the grass is or how lovely the flower is, they will never remain the same color nor the same loveliness. They need outside elements. They need water. They need sun. They need those things in order to be able to exist. So much like grass, much like a flower, humanity has the same problem. We might for some time be consistent, but in the end, we cannot sustain ourselves. 
nor can we remain completely loyal. And we see this all throughout, right? But the one thing that does kind of that that causes us to remain loyal or is is it causes us to be consistent is the word of the Lord. How often do we try to live our lives apart from him? How often do we try in our own abilities? I think as we begin to peel back the layers of our ability to try to sustain ourselves, we begin to realize that we've lost a sense of hope in the Lord, of trust in the Lord. We trust in our jobs to meet our needs instead of the Lord. Our hope then has shifted from the Lord's ability to take care of us to how we can take care of ourselves. When we begin to rest in our own self-righteousness instead of Christ's righteousness, we begin to lose hope that Christ's righteousness is enough. So what do we do? We work harder to try to gain it. The more we place our hope in things, the more we lose sight and interest in the greater hope that is to come. The more we put trust in things other than Christ, we lose sight of Christ. For the church in the old, as well as the church today, we need to be reminded of the promises of God. On my bulletin board next to my desk, I have a list of the promises from God's Word that I kind of read over and over. I didn't come up with this list, but this is a list taken from Scripture, taken from the Word of the Lord, uh, but it comes out of a study that I've done in this past year. And listen to these promises, because these are the promises that you need to constantly remind yourself of. Because we have that tendency to want to hope in our abilities, of hoping in things outside of Christ, of hoping in our jobs and our careers. We have that tendency. That's just who we are. Going back, it's in our DNA, this false sense of hope. It's in our DNA. But listen to these promises, okay? These are the promises. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are adopted. You are free. You are not alone. We can claim all of these promises because we're in Christ Jesus, because our hope is in him. So we, when we look at these things, we do not, when we look at our life, we don't say that our jobs or our careers, we don't hope in those things because those things they don't bring us joy. They don't bring us happiness. They don't deal with our hopelessness. They don't deal with our doubt. Instead, they draw us away from the ultimate hope that is that we have in Christ. But these promises draw us back to Christ, to him who is our hope. That in him we are forgiven. In him we are accepted. In him we are adopted. In him we are free. In him we were never alone. That is what we need to tell ourselves. Remind ourselves. As we're reminded over and over in Scripture to stand fast, to stay fast, to, to stand firm, to wait eagerly for Him to come back and to take us with Him. How do we survive? How do we endure? 
we remind ourselves that in him we are forgiven, we are accepted, we are adopted, we are free, we are not alone. These are beautiful promises that we have. And if we remind ourselves of these promises, then these competing voices, these competing false senses of hope will flee because we're planning our lives on the solid word of the Lord. So as we wrap up our understanding of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8, this Advent season, hopefully, before we begin to close, I, I do want you to let's, let's pause for a moment and acknowledge how difficult it is to be hopeful and patient. It's hard. It's difficult in my own life. You see, we have this battle that's waging in us every day to want to listen to those voices, those competing voices of the false senses of hope that we see embedded in our DNA. And in their song, Waging War, Shane and Shane, which is my, one of my favorite composers, they kind of paint this realistic struggle. And I want you to listen to these lyrics. It kind of gives an idea of this war that wages within us. It says this. It says, It haunts me so, this gloomy weight that comes and goes without a trace. A thousand times my flesh embrace, a thousand more, but if for grace. To see the Lord, the promised land, where in all sins pearly gates look bland, and what was once a pearl is now sand. It blows away, it blows away in light of him. It's gloomy, it's haunting, and it's difficult on this side of heaven. Waiting is hard. Hoping is hard. But let us look to this passage in Isaiah 40. And let it remind us that because of Christ, we have total forgiveness. And we are restored to a right and proper relationship with our Father. And as we anticipate his return, let us rest and remain Hopeful that the word of the Lord will guide us and sustain us this side of heaven. And as we anticipate his final coming, let us hold fast to the idea and the firm truth that's wrapped in this idea that our war will finally end. Listen to this last stanza. That I might see this day, this waging war, this waging war of hopelessness, of doubt, of fear. That I may see this waging war inside of me every day, this constant war. That it might go away and be no more. That I might see his face and hear him say, son, welcome home. The war is over. 
So as we anticipate his coming, let us hold true to these terms, these words, that sons, daughters, there's coming a day that this war of doubt, of hopelessness and fear will be over. Let's rest and remain faithful to his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how you have called us uh, to focus on our the forgiveness that we have in you and the restoration that we have in you, Father, but all because of Christ. And Father, as we anticipate that day when you come, when you return, Lord, we acknowledge our struggles daily, or that we struggle with hopelessness, with doubt, and with fear. But Father, we pray that the Spirit remind us that there is coming a day when you return to us and say, the war is over. And Father, though we may not experience this side of heaven, Lord, we know for sure we will experience it on the next. Assure us, Father, of this. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.